Welcome, listeners, to a new episode, a new conversation about software engineering. My guest today is Richard Roger. Richard, nice to have you on the show. Stefan, lovely to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to. Richard, why don't you start us off by introducing yourself? So, uh, my name is Richard Roger. I am the CEO of uh, Voxgate.com, uh, a new startup. We're only about 10 months old, uh, and we're building uh, a, a software as a service platform for the events industry, uh, collaboration platform. And it's all built using microservices. Who would have thought that? What a surprise. So <laughs> that, of course, is going to be our topic today. Absolutely. You're pretty well known as a, as a microservices person. I believe you run a, a microservices meetup in, in Dublin, if I remember correctly. Yes. yes. Um, so uh, that's going to be our topic. Um, I think we've had a, a number of episodes uh, about this and touching on this. Um, and one of the interesting things is that the definition of microservices always differs slightly. So I think I'm going to start by asking you, how do you define the term microservice? Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, so I remember having to give a talk in San Francisco at one of the Node conferences. I think it would have been sort of 2014 time. Um, and I wanted to shock and awe my audience. Uh, so I, I sort of boldly stood up and said, a microservice is something that... Uh, is, is deployable individually and independently and no more than 100 lines of code, uh, independent of language, uh, which is a great definition. Uh, it's, it's nice and exact. Uh, of course, it's completely, uh, it's complete rubbish. Uh, it doesn't, it's not a useful definition at all. Uh, I mean, I, I got the, I got the reaction I wanted from the audience. Uh, you know, they thought it was crazy, but it generated tons of, uh, tons of controversy and discussion. Um, I, and I, yeah, yes, I only, I only half believed it at the time. Uh, and I think I was searching for um, a quality in microservices that gives you a lot of their benefits. Uh, so my slightly more sophisticated definition, uh, which you'll find, I've, so I've written a book about microservices, uh, which you'll find in the book, is uh, it's, a, it's an independently deployable uh, component in your system um, and it's possible for another developer on the same team to rewrite the full function full functionality of that component in one iteration um, so if you have a shopping cart service or uh, a service that manages uh, discussions in your online service or a service that manages tasks let's say or something like that uh within one week you can or one iteration whatever it is you can rewrite the entire service it can be rewritten by somebody else on the team and you can throw away the old version um, and that really gets you to a lot of the advantages of microservices in particular the idea that uh your entire code base is disposable and you can throw away parts of it um, if they no longer fill the need that you have Mm-hmm. Okay. So how independent are those microservices of yours? Extremely. Um, I think one of the big advantages uh, comes from taking a messages first perspective. Um, the name microservices, uh, you know, is a reflection of the physical characteristics 
of what they are as software components. And it's a little misleading. Uh, from my perspective, you have all these components of your system, however, they, however they're deployed, uh, interacting uh, via messages. Um, and again, it doesn't really matter if those messages are synchronous or asynchronous. Uh, what matters is that there are uh, encapsulated pieces of data that are transported from one service to another. Um, and if you take that perspective, then you have a uh, very, very decoupled system um, because you can't interfere with the data structures of other microservices, for example. Uh, all you can do is send messages to them. Um, so I would be fiercely defensive of the independence of individual microservices. So let's say one of those microservices handles a message, if that's the terminology you use. Um, will it send message messages to other microservices to fulfill whatever it's supposed to do as a reaction to that message? Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right into into some of my, uh, uh, I guess, philosophical thinking. Um, Please do. So the the. If you think about uh, software component models, uh, so we're, you know we're, we're we're going up. Uh, this discussion is now going meta, so we're going up and up a level. Uh, microservices are just another example of a component model. Uh, you know, in the same way that EJBs were, or DLLs, or whatever. You, you know, uh, Erlang uh, processes, whatever. This idea uh, has been going round for a long time. People have tried many, many different approaches to building a component model because we want to be able to build engineer software systems the same way that we build Lego toys. Uh, you want to be able to plug together uh, reliable pieces that you've already tested. Uh, you want to be able to reuse them uh, to execute your software engineering faster and then deliver business value quicker. Um, so if you take the perspective that you have interacting components uh, and one component affects another component, whether that's via uh, message passing or remote procedure calls or whatever, um, you have to deal with the problem of identity. And there is no, if you think about it, there is no fundamental difference between an object calling a method on another object and one uh, REST microservice making a call, HTTP call to another REST microservices, uh, microservice. Because in both cases, um, you have this concept of identity. Service A or object A needs to know about and have a reference to object B uh, or service B. Uh, you know, whether it's a, it's a, a, whether it's a pointer in memory um, or uh, you know, a, a reference in a virtual machine or a network address or a, a topic on a message bus. A always has some notion of the identity of B. And I think that is really dangerous. Um, I think that breaks a lot of the uh, loose coupling. And when I build these systems, um, I like to remove that concept of identity. Um, so this is why I say I, I take a message-oriented approach because instead of thinking about the system and characterizing it in terms of the microservices A and B, um, I, I characterize it more in terms of the, the message that goes between A and B. 
Uh, in practical terms, this means that uh, from A's perspective, uh, A is sending out messages and it doesn't know who's going to get them. It doesn't know if they're going to go to one other microservices, microservice or many. Uh, conversely, B is receiving messages and it doesn't know who they came from. And if it responds, it doesn't know who the response is going to. And that way you get uh, fairly extreme decoupling between the, between the two services. Um, and that approach gives you a, a considerable degree of, of flexibility because uh, you, can, you can scale by just adding more instances of B. Um, you can add additional functionality by adding microservices C and D uh, that do other things but respond to the same message. Um, all without making any changes to A. Um, and it, it doesn't free you up from the technical challenges of service discovery. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about more, I'm talking about more about the developer experience of writing the business logic. Um, writing it from, from a perspective of sending messages, um, and either expecting or not expecting a response in the synchronous, asynchronous or synchronous cases. But nonetheless, your entire world as a developer is um, just about messages in and messages out. Um, I, I, a practical example, uh, for example, in, in the current system that we're building, um, we have uh, lots and lots of different people that collaborate. So speakers and event organizers and attendees and exhibitors, all the different types of people who might attend an event. Uh, and they have lots of discussions. So we have a discussion service, uh, and it accepts messages that um, add comments to a particular discussion, uh, and it will provide you with the uh, contents of a given discussion. Uh, and then from any other service, whether it's a service dealing with a checklist that a speaker has to go through, to a speaking proposal, to um, an integration with Slack, let's say, or whatever, uh, whoever's writing those services, they simply have this message API that they use. They don't know that there's a, a discussion service that implements it. And later on, if we have to scale or if we have to ha add new functionality or it turns out that some types of discussions are privileged, need to be encrypted, uh, it's not a case of modifying that one discussion service. We might add more services that handle different types of discussions. Um, if we've, we're fo we focused on the messages that provide discussion functionality rather than the individual service that implements a particular implementation of discussions, which we may change later. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. So let me see if I can get this straight. Um, it seems that the major difference is that as a default or as the standard case, you typically have several implementations of every interface as opposed to having a service providing a particular interface as the default case. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, and it's very powerful. <laughs> it's a very powerful approach. Okay. I know it sounds crazy, but it, it actually is very powerful. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk a bit about this, because uh, it's interesting to me because there's a huge overlap to stuff that, that, that I understand or that I like to advocate for in, in those, in those scenarios and those architectures, but it's not this clearly not the same thing. And, uh, to our listeners, there was an, uh, a previous episode with, uh, with Michelle Bustamante that had a similar 
that provided a similar similar experience for me. Lots of overlapping vocabulary, but different um, details, which is why I find these kinds of conversations hugely fascinating. So, um, let me try to 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 ask a few questions to to elaborate on the differences between the approaches. So, one of the things that you mentioned was that you um, that you don't see an object identity as a as a concept that should be in that philosophy or in that architecture and i can relate to that um that seems like seems to be similar to discussions that that um people used to have when they talked about rpc style services where initial naive implementations essentially just mapped objects from the oo paradigm to the network and later found out that that's not a good idea yes because once you have an object identity you start having a conversation with that object and you have a lot of state that you have to keep non-explicit or implicit in that conversation. So you're still talking to the same exact object. And if you do that to too many of those objects, you end up having to maintain all of the state of all of the conversations, which yes. is never going to yes. scale. So many of those things ended up um, switching the architectural style, including some of the, some of the things that I was involved in. So I, I committed that sin as well. Um, and learn from it. So the uh, so they switch to a model where you provide the object identity as part of the actual invocation, as opposed to sort of making it uh, making it a, a part of the of the connection, right? So that's a stateless approach. That's something I understood. But you seem to go a step further by saying you don't even want to know um, which um, service it is you're talking to. You only ever deal with the messages. You sort of yes, yes. send the message, and then whoever is supposed to handle it. Um, handles it, which sort of reminds me of the typical um, arguments that people use if they advocate for the use of messaging systems in general, right? So how is what you propose different from having a pub-sub style messaging system? Isn't that exactly what you proposed? It's it's certainly similar. Um, but even, even with a pub-sub uh, style system, uh, you still have to identify the, the, the topic channel uh, effectively. Um, no, I mean, I know there are examples mm -hmm. of systems where um, they're more like message boards or notice boards where services can kind of pick the messages they're interested in. Um, you know, there, there used to be uh, tuple spaces. I don't know if you remember those. They, they were mm -hmm. I do. Sort I'm of an popular old person, so uh, I do. 10 or 15 <laughs> years ago. Um, mm -hmm. This isn't the same thing, but it, there's, there's certainly similarities. Um, maybe maybe uh, an example is, is a good way to go here. Um, so I'll give you an, I'll give you an example uh, which is something that, that is happening right now for us. Um, so we built an MVP, and uh, now we're doing private trials with some of our customers. Um, so naturally, we have a system where there's user accounts and you can log in. Um, so we wrote a user service. And the user service knows how to handle messages, um, to log in a user, to register a user, to... Um, you know, handle password resets to do uh, private invitations, all that sort of stuff, all that business logic. Uh, and it's actually now at this point broken the rule of um, rewrite it in, in one week or one iteration because it's, it's, it's got too uh, complicated. Uh, so what we're going to do with that service is split it into um, at least two services, one that handles logins and one that handles registration. Um, we'll probably take a small part of the functionality um, where it generates a, a user session description and put that in a completely different service. Um, and there may be one or two other uh, 
there may be one or two other things that we leave in that service. Um, but think about think about the migration from what has uh, a mini what has become a mini monolith essentially. Um, there are these uh, there are these messages to do with users, login, registration, etc. At the moment, they're all going to one service. We uh, because of this zero identity approach, uh, we can introduce a registration service and uh, a login service and make a change to the third service in parallel to having this old user service running in the system. Um, and for a period of time, there's a little bit of, of, of transition where certain percentages of traffic go to different places. It's the responsibility of the new services to handle the backwards compatibility. Um, but usually that's fairly straightforward with feature flags and things like that. And once we're happy that the new services aren't going to break things, we can turn off the old user service. But the key thing here is that because everybody that uses the user service, which are mostly services that deliver front-end web pages and you know API gateways, that sort of thing, uh, they do not need to be redeployed or changed or reconfigured. They're not dependent on uh, updating a service discovery mechanism. Literally the same in-memory processes that are running right now will talk to the new services with no no changes, no changes to code, no need to redeploy, nothing. Um, and from their perspective, the system hasn't changed at all. There's still a subgroup of messages to do with users, which we namespace, right? So that they're, they're namespaced to be user messages. Um, as far as they're concerned, there's a single service that still handles all of these things. Um, and down the road, um, you know, we might find that there are specific latency issues around uh, certain messages, we may merge parts of those services together. Uh, and here's an interesting case. Um, we want our system to be uh, very secure. So one of the ways you do that is when you're calculating the, um, the, the password hash, um, you actually need to work the CPU. It should, you should literally make sure that the CPU spends at least a second um, performing 10,000 hashes repeatedly because uh, that prevents rainbow attacks and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but we use Node.js. So if, if you're familiar with Node.js, <laughs> you'll know that I've just described a, a system that will block entirely and not do anything else for one second. Um, and at the moment, because we have such low numbers of users, it's not really an issue. Um, but in production, we're actually going to have to take uh, password hashing and literally put that in its own little service. Um, and maybe even implement that in a threaded language instead so that we don't have that issue. Um, and again, uh, what we've done is in the current uh, user service, it actually calls a message internally. So the message doesn't go to the network. It actually just, it actually is actually just routed back into the same service um, instead of a method call which is, seems like a crazy amount of overhead, but it means that down the road, if we need to pull out that piece of functionality into a separate service, it's possible to do so. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I haven't, I haven't magically foreseen the future. This is like, you know, I've obviously done this wrong before. Uh, but you can see how if you take a coarse-grained approach to your system, and the coarse grains are the messages, um, you, you give yourself many, many... Uh, points to split and merge services and many extension points. Um, 
And this is where I, I, I kind of go back to thinking of microservices as a component model, because all of these messages are effectively the extension points of the components. Hmm. Interesting. So, so to do that, if I let me par- let me paraphrase again. So essentially, if I send out a message, I don't know um, who I'm sending it to. So I just I just send that message, and um, um, I expect somebody to deliver on that, either perform something only or send a result to me in some way. Yes. And I assume that if I if I if I handle a message and do some processing, I can if needed, send a return message. And I don't know who's going to receive that message either. I just publish the result, which in turn puts a lot of burden on the infrastructure connecting those two things, right? So the infrastructure now has to do all of the routing and has to know (laughs) who has sent something because they're the ones who are supposed to receive the result and they have to know who's registered to handle which kind of message, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it, this is not this is not a problem unique to my sort of extreme approach to microservices. Uh, I think a lot of people have issues with message routing. So, how do you solve that? So, I, I think uh, I think this problem, ha- as people have built bigger and bigger systems, uh, people have recognized that this, that this is this is a particular problem, uh, which has started to be solved by things called service meshes. Um, so, these are uh, transport frameworks effectively that uh, run beside microservices. Um, so instead of, you know, if you think of a classical microservice setup where it's a, it's a REST endpoint that you're calling exposed to the microservice is a HTTP server somewhere. Um, instead of calling that, sending HTTP request directly to that service, you send it to the service mesh agent, which is running locally, and then it works out, um, you know, a good instance to, to forward that message onto and get a result. Um, I mean, there's quite a there's, there's there's a whole bunch of different solutions out there at the moment. Uh, there is an alternative approach, uh, which is to embed the service mesh inside your microservices. So that means the service mesh mesh is effectively a, a local library, um, and then the library itself uh, works out where to send the message. Um, in all of these mm-hmm. cases, you have a service discovery problem, right? You've um, you've got to know, or the service mesh has to know how to how to how to route the message. Um, so I mean, you know, at a service level, that comes down to a identity mapping question again, right? You've you say you wanted to send it to the the, the user service, right? I've given my service a name, um, and there's a lookup table that says, oh, the user service, you know, uh, there's ten instances and they live at these IP addresses, or you know, it, it, it matches this particular Kafka instance on this channel or whatever it is. Uh, so how do you distribute that knowledge? Um, so you can have a, a central registry, something like console, for example, um, or some of these service meshes, especially the agent-based ones, um, are quite fancy these days and use uh, peer-to-peer gossip protocols. Um, and that's actually the approach that we take. Um, so I suppose we're, we're lucky enough that our microservice approach is uh, heavily based on building Node.js microservices. Um, if you really want to have a, a strongly polyglot implementation where you're using lots of different languages uh, to a significant degree, this approach probably isn't for you, and you should use an agent-based service mesh. Um, 
But in our case, we embed the service discovery uh, as a library within each microservice. Um, we use a particular algorithm. Um, so the acronym is SWIM, S-W-I-M. Um, and if you if you go if you go to Google and look for SWIM algorithm, you'll get the you'll get the kind of paper that explains it. Um, basically, it's a gossip protocol that uh, propagates the identity and network location of every service to the entire network without drowning the network in broadcast messages. Um, so it, it basically each service infects nearby services randomly with the information. Um, and it's designed so that within about 500 milliseconds, let's say, it's tunable. Uh, every microservice ends up knowing about every other live microservice on the system. Hmm. And our library then maintains that table, of that lookup table. And essentially, it's the service itself that registers as a handler for a particular message. Type. Yes, exactly. So the service announces, hey, I can handle messages of a given type. Um, uh, now there is a nuance there, um, because if you want to have this, if you want to be, if you want to be, uh, as I am, strongly opposed to identity, it's not, it's, it's not much use to you to say, um, you know, I'm registering a message of this type, because even the idea of a message type uh, is a weak concept of identity. Uh, so rather than rather than taking that approach and saying here our system has types of messages with specific schemas. Um, we use a pattern matching approach. So effectively, the service uh, announces that it's interested in messages that match a particular pattern. Um, and when I say pattern, that's really quite a wide concept. It could be um, matching uh, certain attributes within the message. Let's say if it's a JSON object, it could be matching uh, certain network characteristics, timing, character. it could be anything. Um, and the pattern matching algorithm itself can be really simple or really complex. I mean, you know, the, the sort of base case is uh, your message has a type indicator and it's, it's effectively just typing the messages. Um, but in doing that, uh, you're, you're really uh, weakening to, to the, the, the ex most extreme degree possible the concept of identity. Uh, and that preserves the characteristic that when a developer works on business logic, they're more concerned in their own minds about message, the message API, rather than thinking about which service am I using. Uh, and that's what gives you lots and lots of flexibility. So that reminds me a little bit of, of words I'd rather forget, uh, which is things like uh, an ESB and content-based yes. routing and lots of patterns that were there in a time when we thought that um, web services based on the Whistle SOAP model were the solution. And essentially, by standardizing everything on using the same message format, XML, which is, of course, today totally uncool, so we'd use yeah. JSON, of course. <laughs> so um, um, back but Back then, when XML was still nothing to be ashamed of, um, we we used to say that we'll just have the infrastructure be smart enough to do routing based on XPath expressions, selecting where, what kind of message goes. Is that is it any different, or is it the exact same idea, just modernized by using Node.js and JSON? In one sense, it is the exact same idea, but in another sense, um, you know, those those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Um, what you want in a component model is 
just enough complexity to do interesting things and allow you to substitute uh, components for each other, allow you to compose components together. Composition is the fundamental operation of a component model. Um, the problem with the enterprise service bus is approach is that I think developers sort of got drunk with the, the power of being able to put in really, really complex routing logic. And that complex routing logic became business logic. Um, so mm -hmm. while you can apply any pattern matching algorithm in practice, um, what, what we use is very, very, very simple patterns. Literally, this message contains this particular attribute with this given literal value. Um, and you might use one, two, or three values at most. Um, and that's mm -hmm. pretty much it. And all of the business logic strictly must remain within the services. Um, that's very good of you to say, because that would have been my next question, right? Because what, the essential problem to me was always that business logic, business logic started to move into the ESB. And that was completely unmaintainable and a complete mess. So you see the same problem and your solution is to restrict it and to have only this very basic support in the infrastructure, as you say. Yes. Uh, just, just, that sounds that sounds very good. Just enough so, to am, remove am I, identity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. So do you also remove well, I let me I just I'll just assume that you also remove um the need for the sender and the receiver to use the exact same message format. Right. It, it yeah, has, only has to yes. be similar enough so that the receiver can extract whatever it needs from the message. Correct. Yes. So this is. I mean, this is another aspect of it. Um, and again, it's it 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 doesn't sound right because from a, a sort of traditional computer science perspective, you would think the next step is okay. You know, let's define some schemas and do schema validation and all this all this type of stuff and make sure that that we have strong types in our system. And, that's how we get robustness. Um, uh, but it isn't how you get resilience. And it isn't, it, it doesn't give you another benefit of microservices. So I'm going to step up again. Um, one of the questions you can ask is why, why use microservices at all? What's the, what's the point? Um, the, the particular characteristics that they give you um, are more suited to the early stages of a project, perhaps the first to six, first six to 12 months, um, because they give you this ability to uh, make really rapid changes to your system without completely destabilizing it. Uh, they give you the ability to throw away mistakes. Um, and that is, uh, that is not something that comes without trade-offs, right? Because you have a more complex deployment environment and you have, you do have a distributed system, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the, the, the ability to, the ability to do that, um, means that, uh, as you develop things like, um, data models and you realize that they are incorrect, you can change the data models without generating tons and tons of technical debt. Um, so look, if you think about it, if you have a particular business domain that you have to model, um, in a classic monolith, uh, you try and come up with a data schema that's, that is relatively extensible because you know that you're going to miss out some fields and relationships. The problem is that in practice, what happens is that you end up with 100 tables and each of them have 50 fields and some fields mean different things in different contexts and you have all sorts of foreign keys and 
the whole thing becomes a horrible mess. Um, and you accrete tons and tons of technical debt that you can't remove. Um, by keeping a lot of things like data models encapsulated within microservices, it means you can make you can make changes to those models without affecting the rest of the system, uh, which means that you can actually accumulate technical debt within a microservice pretty quickly. Um, and then Fred George, who was one of the, the people who originally started speaking about microservices um, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, he used to talk about the fact that why, why do you need unit tests anymore? If, if the code is so small, you can just eyeball it to see if it's, if it's correct. Um, now again, he you know he was doing this. He was pulling the same trick I was, I think, uh, with my hundred line microservices. Uh, it gets a good reaction from a conference audience, uh, but there is a kernel of truth there because um, there's always going to be technical debt. But if you can if you can contain mistakes nicely inside um, the inside the physical boundaries of a microservice, you sort of prevent them from you prevent them from uh, infecting the rest of the system. Um, but in order to make all of that work, uh, you can't use strict schemas um, because you need to be able to change your interpretation of a message down the road. Uh, you need to be able to add fields that subsequently get ignored. You need to be able to run two microservices at the same time, version one and version two, where version one is missing functionality um, and yet still needs to work. Um, you know, so. Uh, version two might have to assume certain default values for fields, that, this type of thing. Um, if you use strict schemas, you don't get that flexibility and you don't get the advantages and you don't get what you want in the early stages of a project, which is this extreme ability to change your architecture as you discover new requirements or new requirements get thrown at you. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, 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 it kind of... If you have later on, you can introduce strict schemas, and I've, I've actually no no philosophical opposition to strict strict schemas as such. Um, you know, I, I, like most developers, I'm very tempted by the delights of Haskell and things like that. Um, but unfortunately, we live in the real the real world where if you want to build a software company, it's it's got to be Java, JavaScript, or C sharp, or something like that. If you want to actually find people to work for you. Um, the uh, the later stage of a, stages of a project where you've identified latency bottlenecks, where you've uh, stabilized your data structures, um, actually allow you to merge microservices. Um, so my development model, uh, especially when it comes to business systems, is it almost starts off with nanoservices, um, and then they start coalescing over time. Uh, and then it almost ends up two or three years down the road looking like a, a, what's called macro services where you can't rewrite the things in one week anymore. Um, so that's what that, that's sort of how it ends up looking. Um, okay. So it seems you're, 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 you strongly disagree with the idea that you should start out with a monolith. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, because no matter how strictly you define component boundaries and monolith, um, they're always going to break. Um, and uh, your developers will always be tempted to follow what their professors taught them in school, which is if you, if you see the same code three times, generalize. Um, so I, I would say you've got to take the opposite approach. Um, I, I go back to my user login, my, my user message, my user service as, as, as an example. Um, 
it's often the case with business systems, which is mostly what we build and, and what microservices are mostly appropriate for, um, that the analysts, business analysts, define requirements in a general sense and then only later realize that there are edge cases and special cases and things like that. Um, so imagine you're building an enterprise system and the users, uh, you know, can be uh, initially a user logs in and they see one one type of dashboard. But then it turns out that managers should see a different dashboard and then there's admins who should, who should see something else. And then, oh, wait a sec, you know, it's not just employees, we also have contractors and they're not allowed to see XYZ. Suddenly you have a whole bunch of extra complication. Even though um, in a thousand person company, let's say 900 people are just, uh, you know, let's say frontline employees and they all see the same thing. Um, so how do microservices make that easy to, easier to handle it? Uh, well, if you start with a monolith uh, and then these complexities start coming in, you start trying to generalize your data model. You start adding features to your entity relationships and your logic uh, that become very difficult to disentangle. If you start with a simple microservice that can only handle employees and can't deal with any of the other special cases, you can preserve that code throughout your, the life cycle of your system. Uh, because instead of, in, instead of adding complexity to the data model and handling special cases with extra if statements or cases or whatever in one code base, you don't expand the user service when it turns out that managers and contractors have different business logic. You write a new microservice for managers and a new one for contractors. Um, you cut and paste the old user microservice and then you make your changes. Uh, and I know this goes against literally decades of, of, of computer science best practice. But the perspective I take on that is um, it's a Pareto's law perspective, right? You need to apply 80% of, of you need to apply uh, your effort where it's going to solve 80% of your problem. 900 users are always going to have to see the same thing. Um, if you add complexity into the 90% the case, in my example, you're just making life difficult for yourself. Put the complexity in its own place. Isolate it. Put it, put it away from the main case. Um, now, what this means in practice is that as you build your system over the first six months, you're going to have um, a failure to meet edge case requirements for quite a long time. A manager will log in and see an employee screen. Uh, but you tolerate that because um, you don't want to make the user screen more the user's logic more difficult. Um, and a more intense example, perhaps, is let's say you're building an e-commerce site and you have special pricing for a certain category or want to have special pricing for a certain category of users. Well, you might have to tolerate some months of not giving them special pricing. Um, another principle, I guess, that drives this is, is to accept that there's always going to be an acceptable error rate. Um, there's always going to be some level of errors in your system. Um, and if you accept that as a basic business principle, that there's, there's a level of perfection that just doesn't make business sense, it frees up your software architecture to be uh, more flexible. Mm -hmm. So I, I think some of what you said isn't as controversial as it used to be, right? The redundancy seems to be a more and more 
yeah. accepted <laughs> trade-off these days with yes. with the growing popularity of DDD and bounded contexts and all these ideas of isolated models that have some overlap. Um, but as you advocate for very, very small services um, that maybe can handle just one type of message or one selection of filter for messages, or whatever you want to explain or describe that, um, how what what kinds of restrictions do you impose because of two services sharing the same data? I'm not really talking about the user service and the employee service. I can see how those would be related but different aspects. But what about the the message used to create an employee versus the message used to query for an employee? Those two would have to be handled by the same service in your model too, right? Yeah, yeah. So this model, although you could do um, CQRS and, and sure. things like that with it, you tend not to do that. Um, you, you tend, you tend to, you t things tend to be encapsulated by the, the business domain aspect. Okay, well, but but, I, but actually, you've you've sort of given me the perfect uh, counter argument to my own question, which is the perfect answer, right? You could you could essentially do it. Then you then you just end up with CQRS. Maybe that's what you want. But if you don't want it, you'll have to keep them. You have to keep them together. But the fact that you can separate them, that your model allows for a separation of those two, sort of makes CQRS a built-in standard yes, model. Exactly. Sort of. Yes. Nice. So I should do your marketing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it's a really nice feature. Um, you know, sp speaking of the the the, the um, some of the benefits that this model gives you on the developer experience side. Um, so, for example, we just had a, a graphic designer join our team. Uh, now uh, they're quite technical, so they're actually able to you know open up a terminal and run a node process and then make changes to the CSS or whatever. Um, but of course, being developers, we had. Um, you know, we were running Minikube locally and all that sort of stuff. Um, and let me tell you that even with a fancy Mac trying to run Minikube at the same time as Photoshop and all that sort of stuff, it doesn't really work, especially since, especially if, and then if you try to do uh, a Google Hangout uh, and your gossip protocol uses a ton of UDP and you're running 50 local services, <laughs> that doesn't work either. Um, mm -hmm. So here's the thing because we've completely abstracted away. The, the transport layer, how messages get from A to B. It's trivial to package up each of the microservices into a single node process because you change your transport mechanism by configuration from being uh, one that goes to the network to one that's simply uh, an asynchronous method call. So we were able to provide the graphic designer uh, with a single monolithic process. Uh, that they can run. Uh, so what you mean is you 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 deploy all of the all of the services in one process. Is that exactly, effectively. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, that's really powerful, and I, it, it's one of the reasons I would advocate for the, uh, the 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 library approach to service meshes rather than having a separate agent. If we were using separate agents, we would never have been able to do that. Um, in, in my previous company. Um, you know, we, we, my previous company was a fairly large IT consultancy, and you know, we worked because we, we'd become known for Node and microservices. We worked with a number of clients that had built really, really large Node microservice-based systems, and uh, you know, one particular client had to pay for every single developer on a fifty-developer team 
had to have their own large AWS instance to run the rest of the system that they developed against because they needed mm-hmm. to instantiate all the other microservice processes. Um, and when you end up in that situation, you know, <laughs> you kind of know mm-hmm. you're in trouble. Um, and, and, and this is where some of the valid criticisms of the microservice approach come in because um, you do end up with a lot of infrastructural challenges if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how how much complexity is there in your infrastructure? So let me let me try to rephrase that in a clearer way. What I mean is um, the interacting the interacting services form the actual application that users will be interested in. Um, users will probably use some UI to access something that'll end up invoking a number of services, maybe with the same or with different kinds of messages. But the, the resulting system is the result of all the message implementations plus all of the infrastructure. Um, is the infrastructure really so simple that you can re- that you can still understand what's happening? Or is there a level of complexity introduced by all of this routing and all of this you know, uh, configuration of, of uh, message selectors and stuff like that? Do people actually understand what's happening within, their, within the system they've developed? <laughs> Yeah, there's the, there's absolutely no such thing as a as a as a free lunch, Stefan. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the short answer is no, um, no. If you go to if, if if you if you use this approach and you are going more than a beyond about twenty services, um, you're going to end up very confused. Um, and this is a mm-hmm. this is a, a a hard learning experience that that I went through with this approach. Um, you know, yes, you get all these benefits of this component model, which helps you manage technical debt and manage changing requirements. Um, but at a practical level, when you have a deployed live system uh, that certainly won't match what's on a local developer's machine, how do you know which messages are going where? And how do you know the system is actually behaving in an appropriate way? Uh, it doesn't even help you to have a, a staging system. You, you literally cannot ha- have a staging system that mirrors production. That doesn't work either. Um, so you've you've got to accept first of all that this is a trade-off. Um, you're going to have to introduce um, additional infrastructural complexity to manage this approach. Um, you've got to you've got to be bought into using things like Kubernetes. Um, you've got to put time and effort into your own monitoring. So you want to be doing things like. Uh, you know, tracing message flows between services. Um, and, you know, although there's, there's some open source tooling around that, Twitter has a, a, a nice thing um, and there's a few other things, um, you do end up building uh, a little bit of custom uh, code to help you manage the system. Uh, so one thing, I mean, mm-hmm. one thing in particular that we do that has been really helpful is... Uh, we have a we have a, a small monitoring system which samples one percent of messages or five percent whatever you've configured it to, to sample through each microservice and then just sends a summary to a central uh, essentially a central time series database and then mm-hmm. we take that and we we use d three to build a, a, a nice little uh, dynamic chart showing each microservice at an instance level or at a type level and the message flows between them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and that, but you end up having to do things like that to understand your system. So, if you're thinking about the production system and you want to know which messages are going where, you pull up this 
um, representation of the live system that's built from sampling message flows, um, as opposed to having a definitive, uh, you know, UML diagram of what of mm-hmm. what your system actually is. Um, okay. So w- one of the things that I found interesting is that you ended, actually ended up building your own uh, toolkit, your own mi- microservices toolkit or framework to to support that, and you've open sourced it. Yeah. Um, it's called Seneca JS, right? Is that yeah. the name? Um, so how did that turn out for you? Are you happy with that? Was that a good experience? Would you recommend doing that, or would you recommend people just adopt adopt your toolkit? It's a mixed experience. Um, okay. I would say uh, if you, if you like the philosophical approach that I have, it's perfect. Um, but uh, there's a lot of rough edges. Uh, this is not a this is not a, a large mainstream open source project by any means. Uh, I mean, I, I go back, I'll go back to the beginning. Beginning, the first version of, of this particular system was built in in 2010. Uh, that's long before the term microservices arose. Um, and in the back at that stage, and for a number of years afterwards, it was a monolith oriented approach. Um, but it did have the core ideas of trying to solve this uh, component model approach, uh, trying to remove this idea of identity and trying to handle technical debt um, and provide reusable business logic. You know, so you have, you, it's easy to have components uh, where the component is a, a utility component for accessing a database or generating SQL queries or resizing images or talking to AWS or something like that. But it's much harder to write a reusable component that handles uh, user login flows or shopping cart logic or sales tax calculations. Uh, the types of stuff that you have to build again and again for clients if you run a consulting company, um, which is where the motivation came from. Um, so it made sense to open source what we were doing so that we could reuse it on our own projects. Um, but I would say I was pretty naive about what it means to run an open source project. Um, so it's very easy to put up a nice website and reasonable documentation um, and all that sort of stuff at first. Um, but then it turns out that a thousand different people want to use it in a thousand different ways. Uh, there's a lot of expectations. So users of small open source projects like the, the Seneca JS project uh, have expectations that are created by really big projects that have IBM backing them, and literally hundreds of developers are, are you know, willing to go and fix bugs and update documentation, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, there's this really common thing in open source, especially amongst uh, projects where they have just one maintainer, where the maintainer ends up completely burnt out because they're trying to keep the community happy. Um, so I'd say that side of it has, has been difficult because uh, what we've built collectively uh, the whole community over the last eight years uh, is incredibly useful um, you know I'm founding a startup with it uh, you know a startup that I'm putting quite a bit of my own money into I wouldn't use it if I didn't think it was actually going to be effective and, and give me mm-hmm. value for money um, but that said it's uh, an open source project that um, you're not going to find um, you know in-depth documentation for you're not going to find a huge community um, although there is a community and you know, there's certainly a lot of people who, who will help out but at the same time you'll hit roadblocks where the only answer is go and read the code um, 
Uh, I mean, it's Node. It's J- it's JavaScript. It's it's only a couple of thousand lines. It's not rocket science either. Um, you know, but at the same time, you you will end up in that situation. Um, and other frustrations, you know, that I would identify are thing are things like uh, JavaScript has moved, you know, really to a promise based approach for asynchronous. Uh, operations, uh, async, await. The async, await um, syntax is awesome. I totally love it. It's, it's definitely the right way to go. It's simplified a ton of my own code. And yet, uh, we're still struggling to release a version uh, that properly supports promises um, because you have to take care of backwards compatibility and you have to think about API design and what the developer experience is going to be like, and then you have to document it. Um, and you don't want to break. So, I mean, the, the system has a, you know, it has about two or 300 plugins. You don't want to break all the plugins. Um, so there's a ton of challenges. I, I, I'd say, uh, you know, I was, I was hugely inspired by the, uh, the older writings on open source, like, uh, you know, the cathedral and the bazaar and things like that, uh, to start doing open source. Um, but I think a lot of those, observations applied to the very large projects um, that were prevalent at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Nowadays, when anybody can push anything to GitHub and anything can be open source immediately, um, if the thing that you're building gets any amount of traction, you end up with a community that you have to manage um, and you shouldn't underestimate the challenge there. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big responsibility, uh, if, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about is I've heard you mention before um, that one of your mantras is generalize first. Yes. Um, can, <laughs> can you talk a bit about that? Because that sounds kind of counterintuitive and it also sounds yeah. slightly different from from your, your earlier take. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, and I, 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 I think the example I was using of, of different types of users logging in is, is perhaps a good example there. Another example I like to use more that's more business logic focused is uh, sales tax calculation. Um, so if you think about it, if you, if you are tasked as a developer to build a sales tax engine, um, you know, it's, it's, you're building a rules engine and you're going to have lookup tables. Um, and I'm talking about like, you know, for, for a, a proper sales tax engine that can handle purchases in European Union and uh, the US and all over the world. Um, you're going to end up with an extremely complex piece of software. Um, that's, it's very, very difficult to maintain and will end up with lots of technical debt just, just because of its complexity. Um, but if you, if you think about, uh, solving that problem in a microservice context, um, and you're building an e-commerce site, uh, well, the way I would start that is literally just having a single, uh, message, which would say something like, you know, calculate VAT or calculate sales tax for me and a single configuration parameter, uh, which is the rate, um, and that will solve 95% of your sales tax problems. Um, it won't always be correct. Um, okay. But you could still deploy that and run for six months um, and then solve the sales tax problem in the way that 
in the way that you, that, that it's normally solved in business, which is if you, if you calculate it wrong, well, you know, you, you resubmit your tax return or you give somebody a refund. Um, you solve it the normal, normal business way, manual human intervention in the small number of cases where it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you mean by generalized first is stick to the general case first, right? Yeah. That seems the okay. Because what I was thinking is that you were advocating for having overly generic components that have tons of tons of oh, configuration uh, parameters. So it's the exact opposite <laughs> that you're okay, I see. That it's, makes it's, sense then. It's perhaps yeah, it's 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 perhaps a um uh, a dangerous way to phrase it. Uh no, we're we're not talking about um you know, batteries included. We're not we're not talking about uh what you get when you download Python, which, which you know they've done a fantastic job of. Um but no, you want to you you want to have absolutely bare bones implementations. Um and in microsystem microservice systems that I've been involved in that have been long lived that have lasted a couple of years, what you tend to see is that there's a core set of business logic services that are very simple that handle the general case. By which I mean the sort of the ninety percent case, um, they tend to be very long lived, um, and you know bugs appear and are fixed. But the actual functionality of those microservices doesn't tend to change or expand very much. Um, and then you have a proliferation of smaller services that handle edge cases. So when you hear people say, "Oh, I've got a three hundred microservice uh, system." If you analyze that system, a lot of the time you find that there are like 50 core services and then a whole bunch of edge cases. Um, mm -hmm. And the edge cases tend to be relatively short-lived. Um, so it's not quite as bad or as complex as it seems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very good. So um, is there something that we should have talked about that we didn't talk about yet? So one, one thing um, I, I would say about being a software developer in general. Um, uh, and it's something that I've kind of noticed. I've been doing it for 20 years. Um, but I've also been, I guess, lucky to have ended up on the on the business side of things as well. Um, and the reason I ended up on the business side is because I'm not a particularly good developer. Uh, I'm okay. I, you know, I, I can I can build large systems without completely screwing up, but um, <laughs> I definitely have worked with people who are way better. Um, so you know, if, if you're if you're if you're not going to operate at, at at a very high level, go into business because <laughs> uh, then you're then 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 you are one of the smartest people in the room because you can use your analytical skills uh, quite effectively. Um, but what I, what I've noticed about a lot of developers, especially as they go through their careers. Um, especially if they stay focused on development, is um, a certain degree of cynicism and bitterness creeps in um, because of business people messing up their uh, engineering all the time, <laughs> right? throwing in, changing requirements, um, you know, or, 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 or just playing politics, um, all this sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, there's this, there's this really funny video where uh, th there's a developer in a room with a whiteboard and three the expert. people. Oh, I love it. Yeah, and then you know <laughs> they're trying to insist that the blue marker is red, I think, or something right, like that. And right. the poor guy at the end, he sort of goes, "Yeah, it's red," <laughs> and he just he just accepts his fate. Um, I think that uh, a healthier approach is uh, to accept reality as it is. Um, you know, whenever humans get together, it's like monkeys in trees. Uh, there is always politics. There's always 
somebody is trying to be the alpha. There's always a, a hierarchy. Um, you know, we, we have, it's in our DNA. It's just what we do. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to suddenly become, uh, you suddenly have to start reading Machiavelli, although that's a really good idea. Um, it doesn't mean you, you have to play that game or try to be president or whatever. But if you um, cultivate an acceptance of the political side of, of human life and the fact that in closed communities like schools and prisons and businesses, those things get very amplified, Um you can at least develop an, uh, a, a, a more scientific understanding of why business people do crazy things that uh, are damaging to the engineering side of the business. Um, and it allows you to get beyond uh, an emotional bitterness and allows you to be more effective. Uh, you, won't, you certainly won't win all your battles, um, but it allows you to do things like uh, you know, instead of complaining that all marketing people are, are, are silly, uh, it allows you to say, well, I can probably find some of the marketing salespeople who understand that if engineering is more effective, they will make more money. Uh, and those people can be advocates for the right approaches at board level, right? So they, they, it's really just about in, engaging with reality as it is, rather than you want it to be as a developer. Um, and I think developers, we're so used to having so much control over our code and making the machine do what we want. Um, we get really upset when we can't exercise the same degree of control over humans, uh, and we think it's impossible. But it, it isn't impossible. It's 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 just more difficult. Um, so I, I'd, I'd say, uh, to use a business phrase, you, you kind of have to lean into the politics a little bit to get what you want. Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense. What kinds of resources would you point people to to learn more about uh, microservices in general and your approach in particular? Uh. Okay, so I have I have written a book on, on microservices, um, which we will of course link to in the show notes. Yes. Um, so that kind of goes into a lot of these ideas and the f philosophy as well. Uh, Sam Newman's book, Building Microservices, is um, so my book is doesn't have much code uh, and, and is slightly less practical in that sense. Uh, Sam's book is sort of the Bible and goes into a whole bunch of practical stuff. Um, even though I think it's about three years old now, it's it's still the first book you should read. Um, for sure. Um, there's a really cool website called microservices.io, um, and that contains uh, one really, really great thing that it contains is a, a catalog of microservice patterns. Um, so that's a really good way to, to kind of take your, your thinking about how do I architect a microservice system to the next level. Those patterns are, are applicable to um, all of the microservice architectures, they, they work as well for kind of my weird skew and things as they do for the, the more traditional, let's say, Netflix-style approach where it's, it's just REST web services. Um, I, I think uh, those three are definitely great places to get started. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So we'll link to that as well as to any other of the resources that we mentioned during the conversation, which I think was great. Thank you very, very much for having been on the show. I enjoyed it very much. Um, yes, too. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Bye-bye. Wonderful stuff. <laughs>